0: Educational leaders often have to juggle multiple roles, such as serving as an educator, parent, leader, and a politician. Easier said than done. How do you find balance? Kirsten Basler, State Superintendent of North Dakota, teaches us that striking balance may not be the right goal. Her extensive experience as a 24-year educator includes being a vice principal, library media specialist, classroom teacher, instructional assistant, and nine years as a school board member make her extremely qualified to provide perspective. After five minutes of listening to Superintendent Baszler, you will be a fan. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, hello. Hopefully everyone is doing extremely well. My name is Jeff Rose and welcome to Leader Chat. I will remind us that we're engaging in this in one of several ways. You're watching it live, maybe you're watching the recording video version, but I, I'm supposed to say this, it's almost the shameless plug, but this is a podcast that we produce called Leader Chat. And it's available on everything, iTunes, um, Spotify, etc. So if you listen in that particular way, feel free to let us know how you feel about it. You know, rate us, leave us a comment. I guess only rate us if you like it. That's a joke, but we would love to hear from you. So um, once again, we appreciate people listening. And I'm going to dive right in. This is a topic that I've wanted to talk about for some time. And this individual is a person I've wanted to talk to for a while. In fact, the first time after I met her, I thought immediately right after I have to get her on a leader chat. And so I'm going to welcome her to the screen in in a couple of minutes. But um, the topic today is leading from the top and managing the politics of education. And as we all know, there are politics in education. You can't deny it. You have to figure out how you lead through it, and strategically so. So we have the perfect guest for that. Um, I'm going to be introducing Kirsten Basler the State Superintendent of North Dakota. So overseeing the education of 122,000 students in more than 450 buildings across the state. She was first elected in November, 2012. She was re-elected for her third, uh, her third four-year term in November, 2020. And um, she did so... Um, The the results were astounding in her favor. Before taking office in 2013, Superintendent Basler had a 24-year track record in the Bismarck Public School System, the state's largest school district, as a vice principal, library media specialist, classroom teacher, and an instructional assistant. Superintendent Basler also spent nine years as an elected member of the Mandan School Board, serving as the board's president for seven of those nine years. Superintendent Basler is a native of Flash, North Dakota. She lives in Mandan, I hope I said that correctly, North Dakota, and has three adult sons. Her sons are all graduates of North Dakota Public Schools and North Dakota University Assistance Institutions, and have all returned and live in North Dakota to make that, of course, their home. So I guess bottom line, it's fair to say that Kirsten is a North Dakota local. Um, so let's welcome Kirsten. I am so thankful that you're here with us, Kirsten. Um, welcome today.
1: Jeff, thank you so much for having me on. Um, it's a it's a pleasure and an honor to have this conversation with you today.
0: So I I say this to all of our guests, and we have these incredible guests, which makes this this show actually great. Um, what did I miss in the bio? I chopped it way down because when well, I it, it 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 there's a really impressive bio you have. But you know, I didn't want to read at the screen for the five minutes. So, what did I miss? And maybe just tell us, update us, how you're doing.
1: You know, thank you. I think you hit the highlights. I think you hit on who I am and the important milestones in my life. I think it's important um, to recognize that 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 I'm a whole person. That that I started as a as an instructional assistant as I was working my way through college. Had you know intended to become. Uh, I, my, my declared major for my undergraduate was pre-law. I'd intended to, to move on to and go to, to law school and become an attorney. And then I started working as, as an instructional assistant in an, in an elementary school. And I was thought, I, my, my mission, my heart changed. It's like, that's the trajectory. that That's that's my calling, if you will. And so, and it, it, because it's, it's a lot of different things. I just, rec- you recognize who you are. And ironically now, as you fast forward and you think about me as the state superintendent, I realized a few years ago that I've married both of my loves, to be honest with you. I, I went to law school or declared, excuse me, went, declared as pre-law my my undergraduate major not because I wanted to be a trial lawyer um, but I was interested in the policy side of things and so now to think about what I do I have really married my first love of education and law together as we do policy for education in our state so I, I feel very fortunate but yes a mom and now a, a recent grandma I have uh, three sons, as you mentioned, and uh, I have a new addition. My son and daughter-in-law had my first grandchild and it's a little girl. So I'm exploring that whole side of raising that. So that'd be about the only addition that you missed. And just my complete, utter love for the state that I grew up in, that I raised my sons in and they, you know, went, did their initial education in, in North Dakota University systems, went on to other institutions and in other states and actual countries um, as they continued, you know, their journey in, through adulthood. But they've returned to North Dakota. They're all in North Dakota now. And that makes me proud to know that we have a, a state and an educational system that has allowed them to return and educate my grandchildren.
0: So, Well, you're, you're lucky in a lot of ways. And now with this granddaughter, and by the way, how, how recent? So she uh, will be eight
1: months the end of this month. Okay, so so
0: congratulations. And that gives you a new lens too, right? Because people are always talking about the lens of being a parent, but then when they turn into a grandparent, there's something new that washes over them. So that's a new wrinkle, right?
1: Everything they say about grandparent, becoming a grandparent is absolutely true. Um, You see the world very differently. You see the world of, you know, uh, of of that that your that your child in, child's child is is going is is going to grow up in, um, I watched her over the weekend. My son is a firefighter, and and my daughter in law works in healthcare, and so obviously they work some some different shifts. And when I can help them out with that, so I, I was with her, and I, you know, eight months old. I took her to her first trip to the Dickinson Public Library, and we walked through and explored books. And so you do look at community involvement, educational systems in a completely different way. Um, it's it's really rewarding. It really is.
0: So you, you talked about your first position in school districts being an instructional assistant, right? Um, that was mine too. Um, did you, I have to assume, as an instructional assistant, you never would have, uh, uh, assumed or thought about the concept of one day, I really want to be the state school superintendent. Correct? No,
1: absolutely correct. I don't think anybody really, I mean, maybe some people start their educational career at, in that way, but it, it certainly wasn't wasn't me. Um, but, you know, as I give graduation speeches, whether they be at, you know, high schools across the state or at the university systems um, for, for my alma maters, I do share with our young people that you, you should prepare yourself for the job that you want, not the job that you have currently. And also included in kind of the themes of my graduation commencement uh, 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 commencement addresses include the understanding that you shouldn't ask what you're going to get for this current job. Understand that. When you're volunteering for something, when you're assuming new responsibilities within your school system or your career, whatever it might be, and in this case, in the educational arena, don't think about it through the lens of what will this do for me today, but what might this help me learn? What might this, what this opportunity could lead me to? Who might I meet in this volunteer experience or taking on this this additional job of helping write the standards for your state? framework. Who might I meet? What might I learn? And how might that prepare me for the next thing that I want to do or the next opportunity? What do they say? Luck is preparing yourself for your next opportunity. And that I've always embraced that. I you know, I, I don't think people get lucky. I think they've just done a good job of preparing them. And that's, that was the course of my journey from instructional assistant to state superintendent. And now, Um, president-elect of of the Council of Chief State School Officers, which is the national association, the national organization of state superintendents, commissioners of education, education secretaries. You know, you you think as an instructional assistant, I had the ability, the opportunity to impact three to five students at a time. And then as a classroom teacher, um, 25 students at a time. As a building vice principal, you know, 300 students at a time. As a district leader uh, in Bismarck, you know, we had 13,000 students that we had. As a biz- as a Mandan School Board President, 11,000 students. And now as a state superintendent, I have this wonderful opportunity to impact over 120,000 students um, and help set the table for them to make their life dreams come true and you know just maybe reverting back a little bit more to you know the whole grandparent i've always embraced the understanding that as school leaders it's our responsibility and the honor of preparing our children for their future not based on our past and that's that is even more important to me now is the grandmother of sophie so i think that has been the theme throughout my journey and i think it is for all school leaders
0: so uh, I remember my wife, as I would transition from one position to the next, I was saying, you know, what, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? And my answer was always that, I don't know, I get to expand my sphere of influence, right? And yeah. it's, it, it's, it's exciting and it's empowering. So I can definitely relate to that point. I guess my curiosity is because, as you know, not every state superintendent has your breadth of background as an educator right? You, you, you've, checked sure. a lot, you've checked a lot of boxes along the yeah. way, right? I mean, the trajectory actually makes incredible sense, which is why I assume people of North Dakota have so much confidence in you. But how do you balance, you know, this role of being a parent, now a grandparent, um, an educator, which you definitely are, and a politician? Because yeah. that's not always easy, right? I mean, it's a lot of hats, and you've got to figure out how to yeah. transition from one hat to the next. What's your strategy? How, how do you pull that off? So
1: that has been a question of balance that has existed since I was a young 22 year old, um, just starting on this journey of education. And I'd be a young mom. I had a son and then twin sons. Uh, so I had three under the age of five and and teaching. And so I remember standing in, you know, grocery market checkout lines and I'd see magazines, whether it be Redbook or People or whatever. And there'd be all of these titles that say, how to find work-life balance. How do you find work-life balance? And I remember reading those headlines and I would check out books from our local library about how to find work-life balance. And what I found as I read those those articles or those books or those self-help books, it actually made me more anxious because I was trying to find the balance. And then I found a book that talked about finding things in life that complement each other. Because if you really think about it, balance is kind of like a teeter totter, right? Or it's it, the, the, the seesaw and it's always up or down and it's very, very tenuous. And so that if you're trying to balance things in your life, it's really challenging. And so it was stressful for me. But when I looked at it through the lens of complimenting what you were doing and what your life's passion were, what you were most committed to, and that was an aha moment for me because at the core of everything I did was my desire and my commitment to making sure that young people had what they needed and how can I contribute to what young people needed. And sometimes that young person was my own son or my own sons. Sometimes those young people were the children in my school as a vice principal. Sometimes there was, it was the children in, in the school district that I was leading as the board president. So I would find myself reading, you know, research documents or books or leadership. And I, I would be really blurred. I'd be like, huh, am I reading this because I'm the mom of Lee Mitchell and Chancellor? Or did I get more out of that because I was the, the, the district leader over in Bismarck or because I wanted to influence a policy that I was making over in Mandan where I was the board president? And that was like all of a sudden it's like all of the above. So I didn't have to sit down with research documents that were dedicated to my job because when I was reading it, I also became a better parent. When I was reading parenting tips, I also became a better vice principal. I also became a better board member. And so that was how I found things to complement and that I've carried that even into the state superintendency. What I'm reading now to make sure that the courses, the policies, the curriculum, the standards are in place, I'm doing that just as much as a state superintendent as I am for the grandmother of Sophie. Cause that's what I want for her. When you add politics into that, yeah. um, that that's a different level, but even in my day job of a building principal and I still maintain teaching duties, uh, as a, as the, as, as, building principal duties in in Bismarck Public Schools, I would, you know, leave the building where I worked for a school board and then finally became a school board. And and a lot of people would ask me, especially when it came around time of negotiations, contract negotiations, um, on both sides of the river. Mandan is one side of the Missouri River, Bismarck's on the other. So I just crossed a bridge. So on both sides of the river, there were contract negotiations going on. And people would ask me, how could I be so engaged in those, and how do I? How could I justify what I was doing? And I had to ask, ask myself that very fundamental moral question, ethical question. And it was easy, and I didn't even have to blink an eye because it was like in every one of those negotiations, whether I'm a, a principal doing administrator negotiations or a teacher doing teacher negotiations or a school board member, at the core of that, all of my decisions are based on what's best for kids. Mm-hmm. And this institution of education is surrounded, is centralized and focused on our only mission is to ensure that we are serving our children so they can be successful. When you put that at the core of every decision and every statement that you make, it really is not about politics. It's about policy that's best for students. And so I I've, I've brought that to every role and every position. So sometimes you have to understand that legislators or city council men who you create these county budgets with, they may not see that as their core mission. So you actually have to become political when you talk about, find an argument that is important to them as well. And you, when you can find that common ground that doesn't sell your soul to sure. giving up your priority of putting children at the center of your mission, then the politics really pale in, in comparison. So, oh,
0: okay, so what I hear you saying is that, that balance wasn't the right word, right? You talked about blending, mm-hmm. and it sounds like you, you understand that you need to change strategy sometimes based upon maybe the conversation or you know the task at hand, but your touchstone now remains the same, and yes. if that remains the same, then that creates that blending you described as yeah. opposed to try to balance it all. Because let's face it. That um, creates anxiety because it's not possible. (laughs) Right. And the further up you go, the challenge
1: becomes more difficult um, because sometimes what's best for most children, students, isn't always what's best for a student or students. Right. And so the larger you go, the larger your system is, the larger you go into, you know, the higher you go into – leadership from the top the larger your student body becomes and so those those are the most difficult decisions and situations and issues that I've that I've struggled with and at that point in time you really do then need to bring in a lot of partners to really balance and complement whatever decision and policy you're creating at that time so
0: so shifting gears the, the last couple of years now, um, I think it's fair to say it's been just brutal, right? R- really, really hard. Of course, we could find the silver lining, but yeah. overall exhausting and yeah. really, really challenging. So my question for you is maybe just talk about the, the impact that's had in North Dakota, as well as let's round it up. What are some of your hopes for the yeah. future? I mean, going back to the Stockdale paradox, we have to deal with the brutal reality of today, but we can't lose hope in the end of the story. So yeah. just talk to us about what it's been like, but you know, finish by talking about what are your hopes for the future. Sure, so a couple things, it, it, it's it been brutal
1: and it's been exhausting, both mentally and physically. I think the pandemic I, I described, I think there are two different types of people that are experiencing this pandemic. Those that are, um, you know, pretty bored, and you know, checking out how, new bread recipes, and you know, taking up knitting, and putting all together a lot of policies, and and they're they're dealing with their own challenges and struggles, and not to say that that's any easier or less challenging, but it's just different than those that are experiencing the pandemic with their hair on fire, and every day is an, is a new fire to put out and a new challenge, and now a new variant that we're dealing with, and new CDC protocols. And that's where educators from top to bottom have been. Their hair has been on fire since March of 2020, responding, um, reevaluating, redesigning a system that was pretty static. And so I think what I've discovered is in order to keep up that pace, as we've talked about before, Mark, I mean, it's, it's January of 2022. This has been a two year marathon. And so what we've learned is, what I've learned as a leader, is that you really do need to go to the balcony sometimes. You, you need to take your st- yourself out of, off the dance floor and go to the balcony and, and take a look at what's going on. And we as leaders, um, you know, at least in, and I think this is true of all educational leaders, I would say it's true of my region of the country, of the upper Midwest and, and the Northern Great Plains, we work right alongside our parents, our paraprofessionals, our teachers, and we pride ourselves on being that sort of leader, that we're not going to ask our teachers to do anything that we're not willing to do ourselves. But as leaders, you have to allow yourself to come off the dance floor and go to the balcony if you're really going to be serving your teachers and your principals and your districts well. So we have to do that. And sometimes, when you go to that balcony, when I went to that balcony, What I realized is we all talk about needing to break down silos and really be a collaborative effort. There has never been a time that's been more important. We started to build that culture at the North Dakota Department of Public Instruction five years ago where um, it wasn't, you know, the assessment office wasn't just solely responsible for assessment. Our academic support office wasn't just responsible for professional development and developing standards. We began to cross train five years ago mostly out of necessity of being such a small state agency. We have 174 school districts. So we have 174 titles, you know, Title I applications monitoring to do, but we only have 76 people total in our entire agency. Yeah. And so when you're talking about 76 school lunch programs, approval programs, all of those things, and now 174 ESSER applications. So out of necessity, we needed to cross-train And there isn't my assessment office could tell you just about as much about this child nutrition office as our child nutrition could tell you about our assessment office. And and because of that, because when I was able to get off the dance floor and into the balcony, I realized that we needed to really put that to use and leverage that our cross training and our knowledge, our director's knowledge, our office team members' knowledge of each other's work, which allowed us to have people tap out really intentionally tap out and disconnect when we could see that our school approval office was running themselves ragged approving 174 district return to learning plans in order to get kids back in school they needed to take two weeks off and so we let them do that and somebody from accountability would stepped in and said hey i got this i got this and then in turn they came back refreshed. And that's been a very cyclical thing. So that, that I think is, is what has been our experience. And in that same way, I think that's what I'm seeing from our local school leaders as well. What I hope for is that because of that, we've become a stronger team. We've been much more knowledgeable and we've created the opportunity to do, to create some systems of innovation that I don't know would have existed before. Everybody has said K-12 education as it's existed for the last hundred years needed to be disrupted. And oh, boy, did we get a disruption. And so I do think that we have leaders out there, school district leaders, building leaders, classroom leaders, certainly at our state agency that are developing the mantra and identifying that understanding that we can't do this alone. If we would have done it, if we could have done it alone, we'd have probably done it before. So we are getting so much better at identifying when we're the Batman and only we as school leaders can do this. And when sometimes we're the Robins, it's like, wow, no public health. We need to take the lead from you. And so we don't need to be the Batman on every mission. We can be the Batgirl or the, the, the Robin on right. some mission. And recognizing, especially as we enter into more issues like social and emotional, we need to understand that we can't continue to grow K-12 systems, but really rely on our partners in state government and our partners in local community health, public health, even, you know, healthcare systems um, to help us um, address the issues of the whole child and their families. So that's my
0: hope. So as you're talking, especially at the kind of what you were earlier describing, um, this, this balcony and dance floor, right, that comes from Hyphix. I believe that's the first time I read, uh, read it. I had talked to um, Amanda Ripley in this leader chat. She wrote High Conflict and um, she echoed a lot of the same things you just described, um, which kind of leads me into my next question because she was here talking about this incredible, difficult time of high conflict, right? Political polarization, people digging their heels in, sometimes a loss of civility, and it really all landing in the laps of educators, right? I mean, you may not be able to, you know, s- storm uh, the Capitol or something else, but you can go to a board meeting. Whether you're on the right or left, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's it's tough times. So how? How do you, as a politician, even you know, with your background, how do you navigate you know, that discussion and keep it focused on what I already heard was your touchstone, which is kids. But there has to be a strategy for that or, or else we don't make progress. So what's your strategy on making progress at a time that's so um, prickly as this is?
1: Yeah, my strategy is... Probably first and foremost, assuming positive intent in every conversation, in every dialogue. And secondly, being willing to be vulnerable and humble. Um, I think it's important. I, I think it was from the Heifetz uh, book as well, where it said leadership isn't about being in charge it's about taking care of those in your charge. And so we had high conflict. When I first entered, uh, was it, it, was, it was my first term in office. We had a lot of high conflict with uh, an issue in North Dakota that revolved around a Dakota access pipeline. And so our Native American, the, the, the nations that we share our borders with in North Dakota, there was a pipeline protest that um, was covered nationally. And we had people from all over the United States and all over the world. In, in North Dakota trying to debate this issue. And it was at the same time where we were um, doing tribal consultation. No Child Left Behind had been replaced for the, by the Every Student Succeeds Act. And we were doing tribal consultation. And I, I realized and understood that I didn't know enough about those nations that we shared our borders with. And so I made some epic mistakes. I brought all of the tribal leaders together from all five of our tribes. And we were going to do this tribal consultation at a time where even those tribal leaders and those nations within North Dakota's borders were seeing that issue of the Dakota Access Pipeline differently because it was impacting them differently. And that was an epic mistake. And it taught me a very valuable lesson that I needed to come back to each and every one of those leaders and say, I'm sorry, I didn't know. And I think too often when we get into leadership positions, people, we assume that people want us to have all the answers. And then if we don't, somehow we have failed. And so the humility to say, I've never led through a pandemic before. I've never worked with tribal nations on a consultation where they are some issues that are, you know, decades, centuries old for them are being uncovered again because of this new issue. And, One of the tribe, one of my best friends now, a tribal uh, council with the Madan Hadata Arikara tribe, I asked him a question in private about, you know, very simple question. I don't know about this. What should it be? And he just said, ask the question. Don't pretend that you know. And so I think those are some important lessons learned from some real life lessons that were very valuable as we led through this pandemic. I didn't proclaimed to know I knew what our district superintendents needed in our local school districts, but I needed to spend time with them. I mean, that was a vulnerable position. I think that I put myself in, I would get on these weekly calls with them and I'm supposed to be the state superintendent. And I simply had to ask questions about things that they were dealing with that maybe they thought I should know the answers to, and and maybe they walked away thinking, wow, who is the state superintendent? Why is she leading my education agency? But I think because of that, I earned a lot of respect and a lot of, um, they taught me a lot and hopefully they were able to to get from the state agency what they needed at that moment in time. And so I guess that's how I, that's the, that's how I lead through those really hard hitting, very volatile moments is with humility and assuming that when those local superintendents and local building principals were asking me those tough questions, it wasn't because they wanted to damage me or be disrespectful or even catch me or get me in a gotcha moment, but assumed positive intent that they really needed me to know this. And they really needed me to know that that was their question. So I could say, I don't know the answer right now, but, you know, Superintendent Johnson, I'm going to find that answer out for you. And I'm going to find whatever resources I can get to get you the help that you need. So,
0: Well, when, when people um, are panicked, when they're frustrated with or angry, um, it's not apathy, is it? Right? They, no. no. They, they are coming because um, they have emotion because they care. Whether yes. their parents are upset about this or about that, regardless they're upset because they care for their children, right? And so if you can take a step back and say, even if I agree or disagree, it doesn't matter. They're here because they care. And then by the way, that's where we agree. Let's start there, right? Exactly,
1: exactly. And you know, we've had, this nation has had so many extremely um, passionate conversations. You know, the common core, smarter balanced assessment, sure. park assessment. And and that was my first term. And so all of those things occurred my first term. And and people were really passionate. And that's that's exactly when I was first elected to the school board, somebody a, a veteran school board member said to me, There are only two things that will get a normally reasonable, rational person a little bit crazy and go from zero to 100 in less than 60 seconds, anything having to do with their money and anything having to do with their children. And on this, in a school board or in a school system, you have both. And I thought, hmm, so that helped me set my mindset of assume positive intent. They just care. And I guess I'd rather have a parent that cared come to a school board meeting than have a school full of children whose family didn't care. Right. And maybe they don't care the way you do or agree with you, but, they want the absolute best for their child and their community. So,
0: so I have this term I call judging up. And um, mm-hmm. I, I realized I do this as a in the education world as a teacher. I had a very strong opinion about what was being done or not being done by, say, our, our principal or school administration. And then when I became a principal, I had very strong opinions about what was happening at central office, and et cetera. Um, and I would just judge up. And then we just continue to do that, and I fall into that trap every day. I judge up. But you don't actually know what it's like until you get there, right? And then when you get there, the higher you up as a leader, the more lonely and isolating it actually is because fewer and fewer people can relate and understand. So um, as judging up just happens, um, don't try to debate whether it does or doesn't. It just does. Just trust me. You know that. So... In your position, I guess, what would you want people to know about what it's like for... uh, Because being vulnerable is a good idea. We agreed on that. So in in a vulnerable state, what would you want people to know about you as it relates to the kind of judgments you see them making?
1: Thank you for that. It's actually... It's an important question. And I had um, a conversation that was very, uh, that touched on this, this morning with a couple of uh, the office directors, a couple of my teammates who lead their offices in our agency. And I guess I would, you know, we talked about it earlier in this conversation about preparing yourself for your next opportunity. And so when I was a classroom teacher, I was very curious about what our assistant principal and our principal's job was. And so be curious about what that next level up is. And not because I ever thought I wanted to be an assistant principal or a principal, but I knew I wanted to understand what they were dealing with so I could help make sense of what was happening in my own life. So I could... if nothing else, just explain it to me, help me understand why I was needing to switch reading curriculums or why I needed to suddenly do math differently in my classroom. And then when I was a building principal, what was going on at central office? And what were the things that were coming from the state to our district's office? And then when I went to the district again, so I was always being curious. and one of the things that I that I think that I want them to know is, and, and now as a state chief, I have made it my goal to help understand what Secretary DeVos was dealing with, now what Secretary Cardona is dealing with, and understanding that, wow, I'm really impatient that they didn't get the regs out and the guidance out on the new ESSER, the ESSER III, as we call it in North Dakota, that they just got that guidance out in January. I'm frustrated by that, but I understand that, wow, Secretary Cardona didn't get confirmed until March of 2021, had a whole new team that he had to first find and then onboard and then deal with, you know, Senate approval. And so when district leaders are frustrated with the state administrative office, that they understand that I sometimes, too, am frustrated with my next level up. And when I ask them to fill out reports that make no sense to them at all and have a deadline that is constantly moving, that's likely because I just had a deadline move on me because I have SEA reports that are due to the U.S. Department of Ed by a certain de- in a certain format. So when that comes down to me, then I have to push that down. So I hope they understand that my service is to them as school district leaders, so they can serve their building principals. So they, the principals, can serve their classroom teachers. So ultimately, we can get to our students, yeah. and that's our that's our goal. So I hope they understand that it isn't because I just sit at the SEA or anybody at the team sits at the SEA agency at, at the tower is what we call our capital and think about you know ways that we can just collect more information to collect more information. So I encourage everybody to be curious about that level up and help understand what's going on there. If for no other reason, just to help you be at peace with it or yeah. to understand it and wrap your mind around it.
0: So. Yeah, you're not, you're not taking naps. This is not the yep. reason, right? That you... <laughs> <Right. laughs> so,
1: exactly, exactly.
0: So I asked this question of, of most of our guests. Um, we provide this content for members and beyond um, which is information to them but the majority of our systems are roundtable processes. We say circles are better than rows. So if you and I were to pretend we're sitting around a, a circular table with educational leaders around it and you were to provide them with just kind of brass tacks are some pragmatic advice I have for you right now. What would you, what would you tell them?
1: I would absolutely say, I love that analogy of circles are better than roads. Um, I would say, listen, really, really listen. Um, a friend of mine, a, the D- Department of Human Service executive director in North Dakota says, I have more cabinets than an average kitchen does. And I do, I have a lot of cabinets and these are not formal um, boards or formal councils, but I create a lot of kitchen cabinets of my stakeholders, my customers. And it's because when I say listen more than acting, I am not one to create a plan. I think it's important. Pragmatic advice, don't develop a plan and then go to your partners and say, hey, will you partner with me? Because that's not partnership. That's you asking them to support your plan. When you have a problem sit down with the stakeholders or you have an issue or not a problem or, you know, something that needs to to have a solution or develop a better way of doing things. Bring those stakeholders around in a circle and say, Hey, this is what I need to get out of this. What do you need to get out of this? And then develop the plan together. You're going to get angry. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to get maybe a little, you know, you're going to need to roll up your sleeves and get sweaty and and sometimes dirty. You might even walk away from that circle at some point, but go back because when the plan that you create with everybody involved is finally created, all of your stakeholders are immediately going to own it. So I would say get in circles more often, not just leadership circles, but planning circles with those that are being impacted and develop a plan and if you don't, don't call it a partnership. Call it, can you embrace the plan that I've developed? And just call it what it is. Yeah. So.
0: Well, Kirsten, North Dakota is in good hands. I, I am so thankful for this opportunity that, that we had here today. And this, 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 this perspective that you provide, it's, it's gold. And uh, I really appreciate your time because I know um, you have little of it. So thank you.
1: Thank you for the work you do. Thank you to Cognia for providing this platform. I think it's an incredibly great idea to have, as you said, the further up you go, there's fewer of you. So to provide this forum where leaders are helping leaders, that is gold. So thank you for committing to that. Thank you so much, Jeff.
0: Thank you. I look forward to our next chat. I do too. Ladies and gentlemen, so now you know, now you know, Why? The first time I talked to Kirsten, as soon as I was done off that telephone call, I thought, we need to get her in a leader chat. Um, She is clearly a wise and focused leader. And in the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for everything that you're doing on behalf of our schools, communities, and most importantly, our kids. Be well.